text comes to us uh, from Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, and goes as follows. So therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God, and, in, and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Pray with me for just a moment. Father, we come before you as sinful and broken people, as a result of our nature and our willful actions. Yet, because of your Son and his finished work, we are not hopeless. And indeed, we are redeemed in your sight for all eternity. Our desire is that we would finish our race here in a way that is in accord with your word and your will. And so we pray for this time of worship, particularly that you would send your spirit over Pastor Ryan as he works to teach us. We pray that you would remember all those who are suffering from physical ailments, grieving from losses, and struggling with the challenges of life here on the planet. And for those people, we pray that you would work healing, extend comfort, and provide for physical needs in a way that would bring glory to your name and faith in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody can have a seat. Thanks, Dr. G. Hi. Well, good morning, Christ Community Church. My name is Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, please open it up to the book of Romans. He'll probably hate that I do this, but Pastor Jeff did a great job, didn't he? Man, that was, that was awesome. You know, I said in first service that uh, everybody keeps coming up to Patrick and I just wondering when we're going to make the leap and lead worship for you guys one of these weeks, and I keep responding that there's something about being too gifted for a position, that uh, in the uh, new heavens and new earth, you will see it in all of its glory. So Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be finishing out this morning. Some years back, I heard a story about a college ministry group at a large university in the UK. The students came together, and they wanted to figure out a unique way to reach their fellow students with the gospel. So they printed out Romans 1, 18 to 32. That's our larger contextual passage this morning. And they printed it out with no verse numbers and in everyday language without saying it's from the Bible. Simply written as you and I would speak today. And then they distributed it around the campus. Soon after this, the leaders of the ministry were called to go before the school authorities the student leaders were told in no uncertain terms that they would be censored for this offensiveness that they distributed. The icing on the cake was that the school authorities demanded that the students bring forth the author of this offensive piece <laughs> of writing. Humor aside, the first chapter of Romans is offensive to many people. But in many respects, we have to ask ourselves the singular question. Will we sit under the authority of God's word or will we stand above it? Will we sit under the authority of God's word or will we stand above it? Will we come to it saying, God, this is hard for me to embrace. This is hard for me to accept. Teach me to love you more than the things of this world. 
and the acceptance of this world, to submit my life to your revelation and not to my own desires and my own wants and my own feelings? Or will we tell God that we know better, that his ways aren't right, that he must not be aware of what is happening in today's culture, for we are enlightened and we know better? No, the heart of the Christian is to submit our entire lives to all of God's word, understanding that he has built into the fabric of creation a right ordering of life and an expectation that we live in accordance with his revealed standards and truths. But as Pastor Jeff opened up for us last week, that hasn't happened. Humanity in its sinfulness has, as it says in verse 21, failed to glorify God and failed to show him gratitude. And this is the heart of idolatry. We are worshipful beings that will find something to worship. And when that isn't God, when we don't glorify God, when we don't acknowledge God as God, our hearts will fill the void with whatever else they can find in life, whether it be work or pleasure or money or being able to do whatever we want to do. It is, as John Calvin said a long time ago, the human heart is an idol factory. We incessantly produce something to fill that eternal void. And so our text this morning speaks to that, and we need to understand what is happening overall in the passage to understand specifically what Paul is getting at in this vice list. So let's read our passage and then pray to God that he would help us to understand it. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 28. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God... God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Let's pray. Father, may the words on my lips and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you this morning as I have wrestled with this text. I'm confronted with the reality that I see myself in it, and I hate that. But Father, praise you for your forgiveness. Praise you for the forgiveness uh, that you have accomplished for your redeemed saints in this room. I pray for those who don't know you, that they would experience that this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'd like to provide my outline and then hopefully show it to you from the text. Paul's main point for this larger section is this. Gentiles have failed to acknowledge God as God. Therefore, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind. God delivered them over to an unrighteous life, and God delivered them over to a willful celebration of darkness. If you're taking notes, the outline is provided in the bulletin. So our main point, let's jump into it. Gentiles have failed to acknowledge God as God. Now throughout this sermon, I'm going to be using Gentiles and humanity almost interchangeably because we have to hear ourselves in this statement. So for chapter one, the focus is on Gentiles. And then in chapter two, Paul's going to turn to the Jews And then in chapter 3, he can conclude in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice the bold all there. So when you hear Gentiles, recognize it as an apparent condition of all humanity, for all of us in here, that we as the human race have failed to acknowledge God and his created order. 
the failure has resulted, as verse 18 tells us, so that his wrath is revealed from heaven. It is uncovered. It is made known to humanity. God stands behind this wrath as it serves a corrective purpose, as Jeff said last week. And notice in verse 18 that it is from heaven. This draws our thoughts to God. This wrath is from God. He sees all things. He sees all of the sins of humanity, and thus his wrath is revealed against it. And Paul is going to get to the point about how we can be shielded from that coming wrath, but not yet. That's later on in Romans. Because chapter 1 is setting the stage for what has happened in history and what we see happening today. So chapter 1 is the problem. The big problem. And before you even begin to understand or comprehend or grasp the solution, you have to truly understand and wrestle with that problem. So this wrath is revealed. But the question comes then, why? What happened? I think verse 21 coupled with verse 28 in our specific section today provides the answers. Verse 21, for though they knew God... They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Verse 28, and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. Notice here how they go together. Verse 21, they didn't glorify God, they didn't show him gratitude. Verse 28, Paul repeats the idea again, they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God. This is the guiding theme of this section of chapter 1. When humanity fails to acknowledge God as God, fails to give him thanks, fails to glorify him, then it is a guaranteed fact that idolatry follows. When we start reading our Bibles from the beginning in, in Genesis, we understand something. We understand that God created us. He formed us. He breathed life into us. And he commissioned Adam and Eve with a vocation to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. That was a blessing. They were in covenantal relationship with God. They had everything they could ever need. But they believed the lie. And as we see in Genesis 3, they disobeyed God and sin enters into the cosmos so that all things in creation, including us, are affected Then as the Old Testament tells us, sin unfolds, it rapidly builds, keeps progressing in a destructive manner. I remember about 11 years ago, I was camping in the Sawtooth with my wife's family, and on this trip, I was going to ask her to marry me. She said yes, in case you're wondering. But about two days (laughs) before, I'm going with my father-in-law and my brother-in-law on a long day day hike up to the bench lakes in the Sawtooths. So my younger brother-in-law, he's almost a decade younger, so I take full responsibility for what occurred here. But we had gone further ahead. We had, were hiking at a much faster pace, something about being young and spry, right? And so we decided to stop, and we decided to wait for my father-in-law. And while we were waiting, we noticed this good, I'll call it a good-sized rock, perched perfectly on the edge. It was like the Lord put it there knowing it needed to be sent down that hill. And so what did wise Ryan do? He sent it down the hill. Or actually the side of the mountain for about a thousand feet until the boom echoed across the valley. Now unbeknownst to me, my father-in-law had walked up at the right moment just as we were giving it that final push from behind and proceeds to rightly and directly lay into us for being, and I'll use the word unintelligent, <laughs> and not recognizing 
that there could be other hikers that we can't see, that there's a warning for forest fires right now, that that rock could have caused a spark, and that generally it's unsafe to send boulders down the side of a mountain. (laughs) And when I think of that fond memory, (laughs) I can't help but think of what happened in the fall. Adam and Eve knowingly disobeyed, but they had no idea the ramifications that that small bite would cause as the boulder of sin just rolls down the course of humanity. And that's what Old Testament history shows us. It gets so bad in just a few chapters that uh, it says that the Lord saw that the human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. So the Lord judges and he sends a flood. Yet God in his mercy saved humanity, preserves humanity, chooses a covenant people for himself, and yet they, the Israelites, continually rebel against him. So the boulder just keeps rolling and rolling down the hill so that the prophets can declare the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And Paul knows all of this. He's a student of the scriptures, and he sees what's true via revelation, and he looks around at the pagan world that he's inhabiting, and he gives us this treatise in Romans 1 concerning what has happened. What is the root of this widespread sin, and how does he answer here? That what was true of Adam in the garden is true of us today. Romans 1 is Adam reproduced in all of us. We have exchanged the truth for a lie. We have failed to glorify God and to acknowledge him. That is to give him thanks and his due praise. And as such, this great exchange takes place. We give up God and we get our sinful desires. And God in his wrath gives us over to them. And so the boulder just keeps rolling. So Paul tells us what has happened. He says idolatry comes and and God's wrath is revealed. We have failed to acknowledge God as God. And so what does he do? He gives us to it. We see this in three ways from our specific text this morning. The first is this. Since Gentiles, all of humanity, have failed to acknowledge God as God, therefore God delivered them over to a corrupt mind. Look at verse 28. Because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. The first thing we see is that a failure to acknowledge God as the rightful king of the universe brings about a warping of the mind. That word corrupt implies depraved, not approved, worthless. God made our minds with the capacity to reason and to think and to live in the world that he has created and to understand it and to understand him through his revelation and to understand our place in creation. All of that is given to us so that we might acknowledge him. But idolatry and sin warps this. God gives us over to sin so that we look at the world apart from him. We don't think we need him. And what God shows us is that our minds weren't made for that. They become corrupted when they don't think of the world with a God-filled rationality. In C.S. Lewis's classic work, The Screwtape Letters, you have a greater demon, if you haven't read it, named Screwtape, and he's training up his nephew, Wormwood, a junior demon, on what it means to battle against God and his people, what it means to be successful as a tempter. And Screwtape says this to Wormwood in chapter 4. It's funny how mortals always picture us, the demons, as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. The best work is done by keeping things out, by keeping God out and the things of God and his marvelous works. That's when the best work is done, he's saying, and it's no different here. Corruption comes after a failure to keep God in the heart and the mind. 
You see, what I understand to be true theologically when I read the scriptures is that right thinking leads to right living. A right thinking and acknowledgement of God leads to a right living in pursuit of holiness for him. This is a direct correlation, I would argue. That is, in our progressive sanctification, all my youth students should know this term by now. In our progressive sanctification, that is our growing in Christ-likeness and being conformed to his image, that's our progress in this, a right thinking about who God is, what he has done for me in Christ, my place in the world, what is true of his creation, a right apprehension and understanding of those things leads me then to act in a manner that is in accordance with God's righteous standard. Right thinking leads to right living. That's what Paul starts with here. It says the mind becomes corrupted so that sin becomes inevitable. They don't think rightly of God, therefore their lives are going to follow that thinking and reflect that. Really what we have here in Romans 1 is an undoing of our humanity at creation. Humanity was the crown of it all, created in the Imago Dei to love God and to love others and to reflect that love in our lives. But instead, our minds are given over and we reflect a sinful Imago Anthropos. We reflect the image of mankind, of ourselves. And what does this corrupt mind then lead to? Point number two, God delivered them over to an unrighteous life. Look with me at the end of verse 28 through 31. God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murders, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanders, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Now, we aren't going to do a study of every single one of these vices individually this morning, but notice the picture of an unrighteous life that Paul paints for us. Paul tells us explicitly in verse 29, this is unrighteousness. This is the opposite of righteousness. This is how a corrupt mind will manifest itself in day-to-day life. But what's amazing to me, what astounds me, is the inclusion of various sins and their placement next to others here. Paul knows what you and I are prone to doing when we read a list like this. In our self-justification, in our self-righteousness, that sinful part of our flesh that doesn't want us to recognize our sinfulness, doesn't want us to confess it to others. We can read over some of these lists of sins and say, well, I don't do the worst of those. I'm not that bad. But Paul gives us no room to wiggle out. Well, Paul, I'm not a murderer. I don't have blood on my hands like you do. So then he puts envy and quarrels on either side of murder, something that at one time or another has affected us all. Well, Paul, I surely don't hate God. I I love him. I can never be called a God-hater like it says there. And he says, but you manifest a hate for God when you gossip or slander those created in his image. Older kids, students that I might have in here and listening, look with me at the passage at the end of verse 30. God through Paul includes disobedience to parents in a list like this. Now, I'm not talking about here and there disobedience. Part of growing up and maturing is understanding correction comes and no parent should demand perfection and they should never cause you to sin. That's a warning to us parents. But students, kids, I'm talking about a self-pride that leads you to say while you're under their authority, I know better. Mom or dad's rules are dumb. I don't need to obey. He includes that in a vice list like this. It is evidence of a corrupt mind that doesn't fear God when you are known for your disobedience to your parents. 
And look at the other vices. Untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Has that ever been you? Paul includes a list like this concerning the Gentiles and really all of humanity to recognize one thing. In my sin, I do those things. I'm guilty. That's me. There is an unrighteousness in me. And as we think of our world, we recognize this as well, don't we? As we look out at society and our culture, we recognize a culture that doesn't acknowledge God, definitely doesn't glorify him. And we see all of these things that are present. We see a culture that is God-hating by hating their neighbor when we see and hear of racist thoughts or actions. A culture that celebrates the murder of children in the womb in the name of choice and freedom. A culture that demands the celebration of God's specific judgment in verses 26 to 27. Think on that. Celebrating God's judgment. Where it says that men and women abandon natural sexual relations and instead become inflamed in lust for one another. Celebrates it. While then seeking to redefine the God-given creational boundaries in Genesis 1 and 2 by telling young children today that they can instead choose to be whatever they want. As a culture, we are teaching our children not the things of God, but instead how to idolize the self so that they end up disregarding God and his word altogether. We see a culture of envy that manifests in a ridiculous consumerism where our greed causes us to never be satisfied with what the Lord has provided. And on and on we could go through this list. This is the progression Paul lays out concerning the history of humanity apart from God. When we don't acknowledge God as God, when we turn to acknowledge something else, in that exchange, God gives us what we want, and we see that first in a corrupt mind. We fail to think about God and his created order rightly. And our wrong thinking leads straight to an unrighteous life, as we have seen, where we manifest that unrighteousness through the varying sins he outlines here. And lastly, Gentiles, humanity, us before the Lord converted our hearts. When we continue in this downward spiral, when the boulder keeps going down the side of the mountain, where do we end up? Point number three. God delivered them over to a willful celebration of darkness. This is one of the more sobering verses in the Bible, in my opinion. Verse 32 of Romans 1. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. The final end in Paul's progression is this, a willful celebration of that which is dark, that which is sinful, that which is against the commands of God. I think there's a couple things to point out here. First, Paul says that Gentiles know God's just sentence. You see it there in the text. I take this to mean that he's speaking of two things. First, he's tying it back in with verse 19 that all humanity should understand from natural revelation that there is a God, but they don't. They willfully suppress it. And second, I think this harkens back to creation that even after the fall, Gentiles, humanity, understand God's revealed morality, his moral law as written on their conscience. So they should recognize that there is a God, they should see that, and even further, all humanity understands some of his righteous decrees. They understand the basics of good and evil. But what happens? Push it down. They suppress it. And Paul expounds even further. They know the just sentence. They know that the sin is deserving of death, but their consciences have been seared. And evil breeds more evil as humanity's fallen state, as outlined here, is perilous. And look at how the chapter closes. They not only do them, so they're ignoring the wrath of God, they're ignoring the coming judgment, they're ignoring his righteous decrees, they not only do them, 
would even applaud others who practice them. This darkness is a scary thing. Because for many of those sins outlined in this vice list, we might not always be aware of them. Someone gossips about me, I might not even know it. Or I have this pride that blinds me from even recognizing that I'm prideful. Or our quarrels are often hidden from the eyes of others, confined behind the walls of our homes. But this last statement is something else even further. It's why I labeled the point a willful celebration of darkness. These people celebrate sin publicly. They encourage you in it. They want your participation. They are inflamed and encouraged at your participation in the things of darkness. They applaud those who practice them. We've all seen this in various ways, but this is the state of rebellion we see today. No longer a hiding of sins. Let's bring them out into the public eye, not for confession and repentance, but for celebration and approval. And it's this applaud language that I can't get past. It's not a slow, sardonic clap, but a raucous cheer. Compare that with what we see in Hebrews 12 in the hall of faith that says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the image is that those faithful saints from centuries past who are encouraging us onward, cheering us towards faithfulness, delighting in our pursuit of godliness, and here we have just the opposite, cheering on the darkness. It's the kingdom of the world kingdom of Satan versus the kingdom of God, and I see both of those things progressing throughout the scriptures until Christ comes again. And approval and applause of sin, just like for Paul's readers, is the culture that we inhabit. So the question comes, what do we do? How then should we live and think? I think the rest of Romans is going to help us with that immensely, but let me close out with two application points. The first is this, always look to the righteous one. Always look to the righteous one. Sometimes when walking through a text like this that spells out the bad news for us in our world in such a clear way, we can feel a weight. We feel the weight of our sins. I think we should. God, that's me. I recognize myself at times in the text. And so we're confronted with our sin and we know in our hearts and our very souls that we don't stand a chance of being in the presence of a holy God apart from a miraculous work. I want to tell you this morning that that miraculous work has been done for you. This is the beauty of Romans that we're going to see as we study it over the coming months, but I can't put it more clearly than Romans 5, 8, which says, but God proves, that is, he demonstrates, he uh, unveils, just like his wrath, his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, while Romans 1 was true of us, while we were hating God in our hearts and minds, Christ died for us. And it's that reality that we have to rest in and remind ourselves often of because this side of eternity, sin still plagues us. We still wrestle with it. It's this struggle with unrighteousness. But it's in the midst of those moments that we have to look to Christ, have to look to the perfect and righteous one all the more who has done a work on our behalf and has secured salvation for those who trust in him. One of my favorite stories is the Pilgrim's Progress which is an allegory of the Christian life. We have various editions of the book in a kid's format as home, so families, if you don't have that, I highly encourage you to get it. It is great to read with your kids. It's timeless. But there's one point in the story that always gets me, and it's Christian's, that's the main character, it's his burden. You see, as he's navigating the the Christian life, he's carrying his burden. That's his pack, and it's on his back, and throughout the story, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's the burden of his knowledge of his sin. 
It's also the guilt and the shame that comes in our sins. At times we're, we're trying to look to Christ, but we remember what we did in the past, and it's that guilt and the shame that just inflicts us. Christ has saved us, but we feel at times overcome with the things that we have done. And then one night, Christian has a dream, and he sees this narrow highway that leads to salvation, and he begins his journey, but the burden keeps weighing him down, and it makes his journey all the more difficult. Then he arrives at the cross. And John Bunyan says, then he stood still a while to look in wonder, for it was very surprising to him. The sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and he looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. And their story recounts how by gazing at the cross, the burden falls off his back, rolls down to the hill, and into the sepulcher. It's the tomb in the rock. And he sees it no more. And Christian says these words. He says, Thus far did I come, laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in, till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall from off my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that was there put to shame for me. In my kid's book, he cries out, I'm free, I'm free. It is only as we look to the righteous one, Jesus Christ, that we can be free from our burdens. This is the picture of salvation and how it comes. It comes through the atoning work of Jesus Christ and the exchange of sins from our back to his. And in turn, he gives us the cloak of righteousness. If you have yet to trust in Christ, I pray, please talk to someone after the service around you about how you can have this freedom I'm describing. Second is this. Love the lost and remember your salvation. Love the lost and remember your salvation. Sometimes in the midst of a sermon like this, when I mention that sin is rampant throughout society and culture, we can at times fall prey to pride, to haughtiness, to looking down on others and their sins because we have been saved and they're doing things that are completely contrary to God and to his word. Friends, may that never be us. Engage in dialogue about sin, of course. Show people where their ideas and their thoughts leads them into the degradation of society and culture, yes, but guard your heart against judging, for as Paul says, such were some of you. The Bible is clear. We should love the lost and talk about the grace of Jesus Christ, not sacrificing truth. Grace and truth go hand in hand, holding them together, but we should desire that they, like we did, would come to a saving faith in Christ. Is that how you view the lost? Or do you have other names that you call them in your head? So love them. Remember what the Lord saved you from as a motivation to be salt and light, to proclaim grace and truth in the midst of this world. Because this is where Paul is going in chapter 2. Is he's going to indict the Jews for being so quick to judge Gentiles, yet engaging in sin all the same. So may we love the lost. May we hold grace and truth together. May we remember our salvation. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for your revelation to us that you have not left us to our own sinful devices. We might try to find you and search for you, but you have revealed how you ought to be found, and that is only through your son, Jesus Christ. God, we recognize that Romans 1 is a hard passage that confronts all of us in our sin, the things we like to hide, the things we like to keep from others, the things we don't want brought into the light. But God, I pray that you would encourage all in here that by bringing them into the light that there is forgiveness. 
And that forgiveness is found because of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. So Father, thank you for the saints in this room that are redeemed, that know you, that love you. God, help us to wrestle with and recognize the problem that plagues us all and plagues our culture and plagues our world because only by recognizing that problem can we come to appreciate the good news and the solution all the more. God, for those who don't know you, I pray that you would do a work in their hearts, that you by your Holy Spirit will regenerate, bring them new life. God, we love you and we praise you. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen. Amen.